let's pray together. God, we're thankful to be assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're thankful to be able to welcome uh, new people into membership uh, this morning and to baptize Jess Elliott into the kingdom of God and the membership of our church. This is, this is exciting. We're excited about uh, the future of our church, what you're doing is it presently, and we give you all the glory for it. We pray that as we discuss some of these things and continue our discussion of baptism, that this would be helpful, that you would help us think critically, approach these issues with humility, and we walk away with a better understanding uh, of your word as a result of our time together this morning. So we ask that you would be with us, please, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. So I'm going to go ahead and say, get your get your uh, thumbs ready or your Bibles ready, because we're going to have a lot of reading. I need a lot of volunteers. Everyone's going to read multiple times, probably. Alex, what's up, buddy? Good to see you. Um, if you recall from last time, let me just briefly rehearse, because if you were not here last time, um, on one at one level, I don't have enough time to go back and repeat everything. But another level, if I don't at least say something, you're going to be totally lost, like totally in the woods lost of what we're even talking about. I introduced a new paradigm called the conversion initiation paradigm, uh, uh, and, and that uh, addresses texts that include baptism, but also five other very specific elements that were involved in the conversion process, conversion process being understood simply as the process of going from one uh, be living in one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, to living in another kingdom. The whole process that is involved, that process in the New Testament seems to involve uh, prominently faith or belief, same word in the Greek, uh, repentance, confession, uh, giving of the Spirit, or regeneration, depending on the theologians disagree about. Anyways, it doesn't matter what they disagree about. Giving of the Spirit slash regeneration and baptism. And those five elements seem to occur uh, together. And in fact, in the first century, most of them happened on the same day, such that to separate these things out really doesn't have a lot of place in the thought life of the first century. And what we went through last time and looked at examples of is where you had certain pairings of these elements um, that are associated with the conversion process. And so we a conversion a process, as uh, I just described, and we're going to continue. I'm going to have, have two more for you. We're going to see, instead of pairings, we're going to see three and four uh, of them combined. And then we're going to go on to see how these elements are actually used interchangeably to describe the same effect, to describe the same effect uh, in the conversion initiation process. And this is going to help us when we approach texts like a Romans 10, 9, that says, if you confess with your mouth and Jesus is, is Lord and believe your, uh, in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And, and if I gave the example last time that it always bothered me that that text doesn't say anything about repentance. It's like, you're kidding me. Paul has this opportunity to lay out the how one becomes a Christian and he leaves out repentance. What's he doing, man? If you understand this paradigm where you have these five elements and we understand them as a synecdoche, which if you recall is where we understand that there's one of, one of these elements present, the rest are understood to be there. Like someone says, check out my new wheels. Doesn't mean someone look at my wheels. It's the wheels are standing for the whole car. All hands on deck does not mean cut off your hands and throw them on the deck. It means we need all of you getting to work. Your whole body's doing something. So if we understand these as a synecdoche, it's not going to give us any problem when we read verses like Romans 10, 19, because the presence of baptism and repentance and 
the giving of the Spirit are all associated and implied by the mention of repentance, uh, excuse me, confession and belief. Any, any, I know that was very, very cursory. Any questions about what we discussed last time before we, uh, before we continue and move forward? About that paradigm. Okay. All right. So let's get some readers. So get ready to read, read, read. All right. A couple of uh, the first uh, two that we're going to look at as we continue here. Um, oh, yeah. I wanted to put all these up for a cumulative effect. If you were not here last time, these are the pairings that we looked at. Faith and baptism, repentance and baptism, faith and regeneration, regeneration and baptism, faith and confession, confession and baptism, faith and repentance. And now here we are. Repentance, regeneration, and baptism, three of the elements combined. So who can read for me with a nice loud voice and a little bit of velocity? Acts chapter 2, 37 through 38. And then we'll have someone read Acts 11, uh, 15 through 18. Who can do, who can do uh, that for me? Who is eager and willing? Alex. Alex is both eager and willing and competent to do so. Anyone want to read Acts 11, 15 through 18? Yes, Josh. Josh will read Acts eleven fifteen through 18. And everyone would be helpful if you turn there as, as these uh, texts were read. Acts 2, 38, just by the way, uh, of course, is a passage that you've heard uh, many times. Comes in the context of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. These people end up being cut to the heart. He says, you crucified the Lord Jesus. And then in Acts, uh, two, uh, Acts 2, 37 and 38, uh, you are going to hear these elements together as a part of the conversion process. Okay. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So we see three of those elements all tied together there. We see repent, well, see, but what, what about confession? It's not there. A critical element is lacking. Did Peter mess up too when he was? To, no. Again, when we see these elements, we assume the presence of all the rest because the idea that you could somehow pick them apart and, uh, and have one without the other in that context was just not thinkable. Okay, Acts chapter 11. And if you recall in Acts chapter 11, it is the, um, well, We'll just let it speak for what it is. This is a so-called Gentile Pentecost. That's okay. Uh, But Acts chapter 11, verses 15 through 18, where Peter is giving this account uh, as to what happened. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt. As on us, referring back to the Pentecost, this is the so-called, again, Gentile Pentecost. That's the reference. It fell on them like it fell on us. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to men as he gave to us, and we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and the Lord by God saying, then to that, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, so specifically here he mentions being baptized, 
He mentions um, that, the, that he, of course, in the context here that they believed because he proclaimed this, uh, that he proclaimed this message. Um, and and they, uh, it includes the giving of the Holy Spirit, being baptized with the Holy Spirit in contrast to the baptism of John, uh, which was uh, with water. Uh, and so, again, all three elements combine in this as part of the conversion initiation process, even though confession uh, and, and, um, and, and uh, belief are explicitly, are not explicitly mentioned, they are certainly assumed because of the, in light of the paradigm that we're considering. Okay, finally here, in Acts chapter 19, a very interesting little passage, faith, regeneration, repentance, and baptism all come into play with various degrees of explicitness. Uh, let me just read it here. Uh, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit? All right, one element. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now we've got two elements. And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We've not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. They hadn't got that far yet. And he said, Into what were you? Three, baptized then. They said into John's baptism. And John said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. He goes on to explain that there is a repentance in following Jesus, but it, requ- but it also requires baptism that we're going to see. It, require, it, it involves the giving of the Holy Spirit. It involves the same, uh, the, it involves belief. It involves repentance. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, part of that common baptismal formula, or in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. And so in this particular text, you have four of these elements uh, all explicitly mentioned, all explicitly mentioned. Uh, And the one that's just explicitly left out, but is there implicitly, is confession. Okay, so this is quite a long list, um, but what I've tried to do again is put together a bunch of texts where these five elements are used, and only a couple, in, in no case that I have presented, every single element is used, but a presence of at least one element assumes or implies the presence of the rest. Same with two or three of them implying the rest, so you don't have to say, oh no, why wasn't this critical element left out in this particular presentation of how to move from one kingdom to another? It wasn't left out. It was simply assumed with the other elements, okay? Questions about that before we move on to the interchangeable use of some of these five elements where you're going to get an even deeper taste of this paradigm. All right, so let's get some readers. Let's get thumbs thumbs and pages ready here. Okay, so uh, let's see. All right, so 2 Peter 3.9, who's got that? Michael Willis. John 3.16 and 17, who wants to quote or read that? Who wants to easy? Someone can quote or read John 3.16 and 17. Crystal, yes. Uh, Acts 16.31. Asher. Ephesus. Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Who wants to read Ephesus 2.8 and 9? There you go. Okay. Romans 10, 9, and 13, which is going to be a rehash. Romans 10, verse 9 and 13. Who wants to read that? There we go. Christian. 
Salvation comes through regeneration. John 3, 3 through 5. Who wants to read John 3, 3 through 5? John 3, 3 through 5. Yes, Josh. And let's do one more and then we'll reassign them. Salvation comes through regeneration and baptism. Titus 3, 4 through 7. Who wants to read Titus 3, 4 through 7? Noah. Yes, thank you. Titus 3, 4 through 7. He would be delighted to read that. Okay, salvation comes through repentance. How does remember as one of the five elements? How does salvation come? How does one to put it to be super Baptisty about it? How does one get saved through repentance? Michael Willis with a nice loud voice and a little bit of velocity. That all should reach repent. Oh, wait a second. I thought he was going to say all that all would reach salvation, that all would reach eternal life. Instead, what does he substitute in for that? And it's clearly implied is repentance. The idea that he's not slow uh, is is in the context of his return. Scoffers will come in the last day back in Second Peter three and say, what about these promises? You've been waiting around forever. And he's saying the Lord is not slow as y'all count slowness, but he's patient. He's wanting everyone to repent. And follow after, right after that, you're going to get an account of the renewal of all things and the destruction of all things. The repentance here is, is, is how salvation comes. That's what he's saying he's waiting for. I'm waiting for all the sheep to come into the fold. And then there will be a point at which there will be one last sheep who repents and believes. And I'm going to return. That's the idea, Second Peter 3. Okay, Salvation comes through faith or belief. Uh, John, uh, excuse me, uh, John, yeah, three sixteen and seventeen. Who had that one? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. So we have that. Remember, faith, belief, where is the same is the same word. Uh, in 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 the Greek, and so some of these passages are going to have uh, one or the other. Acts sixteen thirty one, salvation comes through faith. Okay, I'm sorry, did I interrupt you? Or is at the end of the verse? Believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved, you and your household. Okay, again, remember, no, no mention of repentance, no mention of confession, belief, belief. Is that problematic? Shouldn't be. Interchangeable elements here. They're assuming the rest. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Love this one. It's such a good passage here. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Excellent. Nothing about belief, nothing about repentance. By grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. So does salvation come through repentance? Second Peter three years it come through faith. And the answer is both. Yes, the answer is yes. Okay, it's the whole point of this exercise. Salvation comes in this next in this next passage through confession and faith or belief. Romans ten nine and then verse thirteen. And that, can, that calling out, that confessing, that I'm confessing Lord, I'm confessing uh, God as the 
risen Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through faith. Now, salvation comes through confession in faith. Now, we're going to see salvation coming through regeneration slash the giving of the Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit, uh, John 3, 3 through 5. So here, integrity related to entering the kingdom of God is not repentance. Okay, it is not a particular kind of confession. It is being born by the Spirit. Okay, it is being transformed by the Spirit, taken in from the one realm into another realm, and it even uh, it even shows the sovereignty of God and how difficult it is to apprehend exactly what's going on here because of how in control He is. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again, verse 7. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Something that comes from the Lord, someone who is born from above, and that right here is the key to entry into the kingdom uh, of God. Okay, uh, finally for this batch of readers, salvation. So we just salvation comes through the giving of the Spirit or regeneration. Now here we have salvation comes through giving of the Spirit and baptism. Titus three four through seven. Okay, excellent. So there we see explicitly uh, regeneration and baptism wed together. Now let me just say, I, I, I said this last time, um, that it seems to me a lot of people try to get out of the washing of regeneration that just is the, but it gives the renewal of the Holy Spirit in the same verse. So wouldn't it just be easier to, I mean, to think of the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit? Um, it was Paul just saying the exact same thing twice in the exact I mean, in the exact same way. I mean, it seems to me uh, there's nothing wrong, especially if you're not petrified by sacerdotalism and the idea that if you think this is baptism, uh, that, that somehow you're going to end up uh, in Rome or a Church of Christ proponent of baptismal regeneration. Certainly, it seems to me, and I think the original audience would have assumed, given the language, that the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Uh, 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 were both associated with the conversion initiation process, one referring to baptism, one referring to the giving of the Holy Spirit. And there's simply nothing problematic with just simply asserting that those that salvation comes through uh, those those uh, part of the, those two elements as a part of the process. Okay, all right. Let's continue here. So another set of readers. So not another set. I have a high degree of confidence it'll be the same people, and that's okay. But that but read but round two. Round two of readers here. Okay, salvation comes through baptism. 1 Peter 3, 21. Michael Willis. Union with Christ comes through baptism. Romans 6, 3. Romans 6, 3. Galatians 3, 27. Galatians 3, 27. Galatians 3, 27. <coughs> Excuse me, Katie, yes, thank you. Um, union with Christ comes through faith and not baptism. 
Galatians, I said, I mean, of course, I'm being, anyways, Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. Yes, Alex and then Ben Scott, Ephesians 3.17. Sonship comes through faith. Galatians 3.7. Galatians 3.7. Who wants to read that? And 26. Galatians 3. Uh, yes, Josh, verse seven, Galatians 3, verse 7 and 26. And let's just finish these, uh, this, these two out here. Sonship comes through baptism. Galatians 3, 27. We already, someone, so hold on, I'll let you read the last one, Asher. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Read 1 Corinthians 6, 11. But when we come to Galatians, whoever, who, was, who said they were going to read Galatians 3, 27 for me? Okay, so I'm going to repeat that one, and sonship comes through baptism, and I'll just point to you again, Okay. Okay. So do you see this is a lot of interchangeable use, by the way? I know this is a nightmare to look at, but I'm putting it up here so you see how much interchange there is between these terms, but they're being used to suggest that they produce all they all produce the same effect. And that's because they all assume the presence of the others. And it isn't making, it doesn't force us to make some kind of systematic call about the causal relationship between all of the elements. Time out. We're not going into detailed, fine-tuned, systematic theology. We're describing the normal, unquestioned conversion process and the elements involved. And these are simply the elements involved in stepping out of one kingdom and going into uh, another kingdom. Okay, so salvation comes through uh, 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 baptism. 1 Peter 3, 21. Okay, and I also say that subtly here, a pledge of a, good, a clear conscience before God most likely implies that there is that, that repentance is baked into this passage as well. I don't have time to, to tease that out. But the idea is that baptism, it even explicitly says in the text, after talking about kind of uh, this idea that Noah waited in the ark, it was being prepared, they were brought safely uh, through the water. By the way, in the language of the just to respect the language of the context there, in Noah's flood, remember, the water was what threatened them. It's not what saved them. Right? In the context of the flood, the water was the threat. The ark was the means of salvation for Noah and his family. Okay? So it's not like saying, just like the water saved Noah, the water saved you. That's not what it says. Water didn't, the water didn't save Noah. Noah was saved from the water by the ark. Instead, you end up with a type here. Baptism as a type. Baptism, which is a core, which is a type of this, now saves you. And then it adds a clarifying comment here. And I don't, by the way, I don't necessarily, and this is where people might start to cringe, but I don't necessarily, because of this paradigm, even think that we we need a clarifier here. And as I, as I'm going to hope to argue a little bit, uh, but but because of this paradigm, I think that you probably could just stop there. Now, if it was the only verse in the Bible. That would be probably that would be a challenge. That would really be a game changer if that was the only verse. But it doesn't say that. It says, uh, 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 "Excuse me, baptism, which corresponds to this, or as a type of this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ." A baptism that doesn't have a pledge of a clear conscience for God is worthless. It's just getting wet. Okay, it's just getting wet. Um, so baptism saves insofar it is. Uh, it is a part of this process that involves uh, a, a, a appealing to God with a, with a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which also seems to imply belief 
uh, as well. Okay, so union with Christ comes through baptism. Romans 6, 3. Yes, Crystal. Right, so that into language is that in Christ language, and you stand up that theology of union with Christ. Through all those passages in the New Testament, we're going to see uh, in just a little bit being buried with Christ in baptism. So it is the idea that I am in Christ. I am united with Christ, and things that could be said of Christ can be said of me as a result of that union. And so union with Christ here comes being by baptized, uh, being baptized into Christ. Galatians 3.27 Okay, so we have been baptized in the Christ. All of you have been baptized in the Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Now, union with Christ, with zero mention of baptism whatsoever in these next two verses, Galatians 2.20 and Galatians 3.17. Excellent. So now I'm in Christ, but now the language here is very different. It's through faith. It's through faith. I've been crucified with Christ. That's that, that's that in Christ language. And it's no longer I that live, that Christ lives by thee. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There we go. Union of Christ in this point comes through faith. What about Ephesians 3.17? Okay, I probably should have told you to, but yes, you still have the in Christ language. Can you read that one more time? Because it's my fault there, but go ahead and just read that part one more time. Okay, so bad best practice. If you're going to teach, make sure you let someone like actually complete a sentence in the in the verse they're reading. Sorry about that, but that was the point. That that was the section that I'm getting at. Um, that is still you have that in Christ language, that dwelling Christ. Romans 8 will call the Spirit of Christ um, in you, union with Christ, and that comes through faith here. All right? What about sonship? The son, sonship with God coming through faith. Galatians 3, 7. Those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then, uh, Katie, why don't you read 26 and 27? Because I know you read 27 to second. Ago. So wait a second. Is it faith? Is that how, is sonship happening because of faith? Or does baptism play that part, part in the role? I'm saying that again, uh, to beat a dead horse here explicitly, that that is uh, that they are all just simply assumed to be part of the conversion process. Baptism, sanctification, justification in conversion. So baptism, sanctification, justification in conversion. I understand, by the way, I have, do I have, oh, I don't have on the, uh, I have in my notes, interchangeable use of the five elements and some extras, the union with Christ and the sonship and the, bat- this is some extras here, but it's the same concept. Um, Asher. Romans, excuse me, 1 Corinthians, Romans, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, please, my good man. Fantastic. As such were some of you, talking about thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit 
of our God. Commentators will point out here that it's difficult to avoid that the washing here refers to baptism because in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is part of a baptismal formula. Okay? You were washed. You were sanctified, which is a term, as we'll see in today's text, usually is something that in more occurrences than not in the New Testament does not refer to an ongoing process, even though it is that. It refers, it mostly occurs in the past tense. It's something that's happened. You were sanctified. You were sanctified. So become what you've been declared to be. Process. But you were sanctified. You were washed. Sanctified. You were washed. You were set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So there you have baptism, as I understand it, sanctification, justification, as part of the conversion process. Now, I want you to listen to this, and this comes out of Robert, and hopefully some of these things are going to tie some threads together, and I think I'll have enough time to do this here. Um, I want you to listen to a hypothetical interview with a man named Isaac. Okay, I want you to listen uh, through the ears of the discussion that we have just had, and we're just now concluding about the five elements and the interchangeability of them for a, and this is critical, a person during Paul's ministry. This is going to, I'm going to read another allegory in just a second. You're going to get a picture of how things change in the course of church history. But it's very important that we're talking about the time of Jesus and Paul themselves and what that entailed. Listen to this interview with Isaac of Antioch. Interviewer. I'm not going to say interviewer and Isaac every time. You'll just get it, okay? Isaac, do you remember the day you were converted? Oh, yes. I remember clearly that Barnabas preached that I was a sinner. Yet because of Jesus Christ, if I would turn from my sin... God would forgive me. So on August 15th, A.D. 44, I repented of my sin and became a Christian. The next day, the interviewer came back to Isaac. Isaac, do you remember the day that you were converted? Oh, yes, Isaac says, I remember clearly that Barnabas preached that God had fulfilled the promises that he made to our fathers and sent his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so on August 15th, A.D. 44, I confessed Jesus as the Messiah and Lord. And became a Christian. Wednesday, interviewer asked Isaac the same question. Apparently he can't get enough. Isaac, do you remember the day you were converted? Isaac says, oh yes. I remember clearly that Barnabas preached that I could not be saved by my own efforts. For all my works were as filthy rags. He said that I need to trust in the grace of God. And simply believe the gospel. Because God had made salvation in Christ possible for me. So on August 15th. A.D. 44, I trusted by faith in the grace of God and became a Christian. On Thursday, interviewer asked Isaac the same question. Isaac, do you remember the day you were converted? Oh, yes. He says, I remember, uh, I remember clearly that Barnabas preached that I needed to be born again and that I should not marvel if I needed to be made new by the Holy Spirit. So on August 15th, A.D. 44, I was born again through the Spirit of God, and became a Christian. On Friday, because apparently he still didn't have enough here, there wasn't enough clarity, the interviewer asked Isaac of Antioch again, Isaac, do you remember the day you were converted? He said, oh yes. I remember clearly that Barnabas preached that I needed to die, to be buried with Christ and be raised in the newness of life. And so on August 15th, AD 44, I was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and became a Christian. 
The interviewer says, now Isaac, come on, you've told us five different stories. Which is the true one? When were you truly converted? When you, uh, uh, when were you truly converted? When and how did you really become a Christian? Was it when you repented? When you believed? When you confessed? When you were born again? Or was it when you were baptized? Isaac responds, all these that were involved and associated with my becoming a Christian. When Barnabas preached to me, he not only spoke of my being a sinner and needing to repent, but he also talked about my need to put my faith in Jesus Christ, confess him as Lord and Christ, and be born of the Spirit and be baptized. And all these things took place on August 15th, AD 44. All five were involved in my conversion. I haven't told five different stories. Do you see that? You see that? Let me just say, so we are so far divorced from this context. And now baptism is, is, is oftentimes so far pushed down the road. And oftentimes, if you were here last Sunday, I said that a lot of these things, uh, most of the time in the first year, these things happen on the same day. It's like the Philippian jailer running off in the middle of the night getting baptized, right? I mean, these things are all happen together. And in the course of church history, and I'm not even saying for bad reasons, sometimes for pragmatic reasons, making people sure people understood the gospel in kind of a catechetical process where you teach people theology and then you baptize them on Easter Sunday. That p- became part of church history. But, but, but for us, if, if, every, if, if most of us in here are honest, at least initially, it makes you nervous, quite nervous, to just say something like, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, when were you saved? When I was baptized. Because we hear that through very different ears than what someone in this original context would have heard. But the text can't say what it never said, okay? And we have to understand what it said to the original audience before we try to import it into our own theology. So I'm not going around suggesting that you say baptism saves people. I think for a vast mar- uh, for a majority of people, that'd be very, very uh, misleading. And in fact, is misleading, <clears throat> Stein gives an analogy from marriage. He says this, If I were asked when I was married, I could respond when I said I do. Or when I put a ring on her finger and she put one on mine. Or when the pastor pronounced us man and wife. Or when the witnesses and pastor signed the marriage certificate. Or when we sexually consummated our marriage. If asked as to exactly which one of these caused me to be married, I would reply, you cannot separate them. They were all a part of my becoming married. When I mentioned any of these, I assumed the rest of them. Okay? That's what Stein says. Um, let me, I'm going to read one extended allegory to, again, help, help this soak in one more time, and then I'm going to offer some conclusions here uh, ahead of... Uh, of moving on. Let me get down here in Stein's clever little article. You know, let me just read that. I didn't plan on this. This is free. This is extra. All right. Let me just read this excerpt for you. Okay. Um, Where do I want to start? See how much you have appetite for here. Okay. 
In general, listen to what Stein says, a person could not be converted to Christianity in the New Testament apart from baptism. When individuals in the first century heard, repent and be baptized, or believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized, none of them thought, can I do the first but not the second? No one came to the conversion experience with questions as to whether baptism was necessary for becoming a Christian because the apostolic preaching stated that they must be baptized. Thus, the rejection of baptism was a rejection of the divine program for conversion. To reject baptism, baptism excuse me, was to reject the gospel message preached by Peter, Paul, and the other apostles who spoke of the need of baptism. Divine provision was made for those who, like the thief on the cross, could not be baptized, but to refuse the community's baptism was the same as rejection of Christ whom the community preached. It involved a clear unwillingness to obey the gospel preached by the apostles. For the New Testament church, the statement, unless you are baptized, you cannot be saved, was simply another way of saying, unless you believe, you cannot be saved. On the other hand, the situation today is different. As in the first century, God makes provisions for those who turn to Him in faith but cannot be physically baptized. Thus, salvation is possible for the individual locked in his gulag cell who turns in faith to Jesus Christ. Salvation is possible for the individual isolated in the desert or wilderness who believes in Christ, even though no individual or water is present to perform a baptism. A significant problem arises in our day and age, however, because sincere people possess different understandings, and he puts in parentheses, or perhaps misunderstandings, of the New Testament teaching on baptism. For them, the refusal to be baptized in response to a repentance, faith, confession, or a generation experience may stem from uh, confusion concerning what God requires in this area. The person who was led to Christ by Paul or Peter in the first century did not have any such confusion. The apostles did not present various views on baptisms, nor had their converts been raised in Christian traditions that had different views on the subject. To refuse baptism in the first century was to refuse consciously and willingly what God said and should needed to be done, and such rebellion was damnable. Today, a person may refuse baptism out of confusion, ignorance, or uncertainty, but in the first century, i.e., the context of this, in the first century, such confusion and ignorance did not exist. Decisions concerning baptism today are often not on the basis of obedience or disobedience, but on the basis of misinformation or confusion. Okay? He says this is simply part of it. Uh, let me just ask you... There, uh, um, uh, the, I, I can actually think of one, one or two very clear exceptions. But imagine just you're, you're evangelizing somebody. You're sharing the gospel with them at, in your workplace or whatever, at your mom's group, whatever it is. And they say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. He said, all right. Well, you know, following Jesus. I'm so glad that you want to follow Jesus. Um, Jesus says that those who follow him are to repent and be baptized. And they're like, no, I don't think I'll do that. Well, what would you make of that? That's what, that's what he's saying in the first century that would be equivalent of. I want to follow Jesus. I'm all in. I want to turn from sin. I want to run to Christ. All right. The, the initiation right here. The first, his first command is those who are in the kingdom be baptized. Mm, no. Not going to do that. It, it's not, it, 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 it wouldn't make sense. It didn't make sense. It wasn't a question that people were even asking. Can we separate the two? Let me read you this allegory. 
I'm going to try to interpret some of it for you who have not spent time in Presbyterian churches. Uh, this is a very, very clever allegory. I'm going to try to point out some of the allegorical elements as we go through it. But try to listen very carefully to this allegory. He's, going to, he's giving an allegory about the nature of baptism in the first century and then how things have changed over time in terms of how people refer to it and speak of it and why we end up in the kind of confused conversations uh, that we have. So here it is. Listen carefully. For many centuries there lived in the distant land of Allegoria the Ringist society. The Ringist. This society attained its name because of an ancient custom which dominated its culture for many centuries. Amongst the Ringist, <clears throat> there was an ancient law, the law of the ring, which was decreed that no one could wear a ring on his or her finger unless that person was married. It also decreed that one must wear such a ring if married, then it must be placed on the left hand during the marriage rite. I guess he leaves out like right-handed people, because isn't that way you would put it on if you're left-hand dominant? No? I don't know. Someone tell me later. There were different variations of the marriage rite, but every one of them involved placing of a ring on the left hand, the man and the woman being married. This custom existed for many centuries and was so influential that becoming married was often referred to as putting on the ring. Or we might say putting a ring on it. Now, okay? That's what it became known as, putting a ring on it. After a time, the legality of the law of the ring was challenged. And as a result, the National Court of Allegoria declared this law invalid. The wearing of a ring could no longer be limited to those who were married. Consequently, there arose in the ringist society an immediate economic boom among ring makers. And soon, various practices arose. This is where he starts to get very... A group arose who called themselves the pre-ringists. They placed rings on their children at a very early age. When asked why they did so, they responded that they did so in the hope that one day their children would become married and would encourage, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, in the hope that they become married, and this would encourage the future, the child's future nuptials. Okay? This is his nod to our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. Okay? You see that? So the post, the pre-ringists developed as things went on here. There also arose a post, <coughs> excuse me, a post-ringist group who did not wear rings until at least two years after marriage. This is read entry of some of the catechetical schools where you became Christian and then you got had to get discipled up, right? Until they separated it a distance to make sure that people knew what they were getting into before you had a fully circulating canon and all the rest. Okay, back into the, I'm not trying to ruin the allegory, but I don't want you to miss some of these references. Uh, the post-ringist group, who did not wear rings until at least two years after marriage, they argued that a marriage should first be proven as successful and stable before they dared to wear rings and present themselves as examples of what marriage is to be like. Needless to say, they would never dream of putting a ring on the hands of their children. Of course, there were the traditional ringists who sought to maintain the old ringist cultural practice. But this group came divided over whether the ring should be worn on the second or third finger of the left hand 
One of these groups experienced an additional split centered around whether the ring could be made of materials other than gold, and both of these splits further weakened the traditional viewpoint, which held them all, uh, that the ring went on at the same time as marriage. As time progressed, the traditional ringists died out. This is what he's, this is going to be the first century view. They all happened at the same time. And there arose considerable debate between the pre- and post-ringists as to which of their practices was superior. Psychological studies were made as to the influence of ring-wearing on children. Sociological analyses were conducted as to valuing the ring-wearing for children raised in the pre-ringist and post-ringist denominations. Here's what he's concluded. An ancient manuscript was one day discovered stemming from the earliest ringist society. This manuscript was many centuries older than any ringist manuscript in existence. As scholars began to study it, they came across an expression that caused great confusion. That expression was putting a ring on it. At the present time, there is an animated debate between the pre- and post-ringists as to what that expression means. Okay? So what he is trying to help us do is, is show, because of our cultural distance and because of some church practices, some better than others, we are really, uh, we don't grasp how immediate and how altogether these elements actually happened in the course of time in the actual conversion process. I want you to read this summary with me, okay? And ho hopefully uh, this will help as we close. I understand it's a nightmare. I just want you to be able to read it, okay? The primary elements associated with transitioning from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light assume the presence of the others and therefore can be used to represent the others in a synecdoche as well as what they accomplish in the conversion process. That's why we looked at all the interchangeability. Here it is. It is the mistake of the hyper-proof texter and the overly zealous systematic theologian to view every verse mentioning these elements and or their results as providing an ultra-specific formula for securing salvation as opposed to simply describing the fundamental elements that were inseparably associated with the process of turning from vain idols to the living God. Questions about the bare minimum necessary for salvations uh, salvation, questions no one was asking during Paul's ministry. And that's the question like, oh, well, what if I do all these things but I end up not being bad? The hypothetical questions that we, we can ask now with a little bit more coherence. Questions about the bare minimum necessary for salvation, questions no one was asking during Paul's ministry, or the precise causal relationship between the elements of the conversion process which one leads to what, which one depends on what, which one grounds what, which one makes which legitimate. The causal relationship between the elements of the conversion process should instead be determined by texts that speak directly to the nature of justification and salvation themselves, texts that speak directly to the nature and purpose of the elements involved in conversion, a robust understanding of God's role in the salvation process, a consistent biblical theology of sin and its remedy, and New Testament examples of those saved without certain elements or condemned despite having them. The thief on the cross would be a great example, someone who was saved without baptism. Simon the sorcerer presumably would be a great example of someone who believed something, says he believed, he was also baptized, and yet Peter ends up, to all appearances, condemning him. 
Okay, so uh, again, I'm not saying there's a place to causally understand how these elements come together, which one, which one actually grounds the salvation and justification versus which one is the expression of those things. Great conversations to have, but we can't just be looking at texts that mention these things in order to think that that's where we're going to get our fine-tooth-combed, specific salvation formulas. Instead, we need to look if we're going, when we're going to do that in our systematic theology, these are the kind of texts we are going to look for uh, and look in as we piece together a theology of salvation, uh, a, a theology of salvation and how baptism relates to it. So when we come back next time, I think we'll have cleared the ground and set up this paradigm so that we can talk about baptism and I can give a, a, a certainly an unashamedly Baptist view of what that represents. But I hope that having this paradigm in the back of your mind helps you approach some of these texts uh, that mention baptism, uh, accomplishing certain things that you might beforehand have been uncomfortable attributing that to, because now you have a bit of a framework uh, to explain that in light of the initiation, initiation conversion paradigm. Okay? All right, thank you for the time. I know I went over. The Sunday school teachers are going to yell at me. It's okay. I, won't, I don't do it often, but I did want to get through that uh, this morning. Thank you for your time. Let's pray. God, uh, we are thankful for baptism, what it signifies. We eagerly await baptism here in the next hour to see how you have transformed uh, one sweet girl's heart, and uh, we pray that our worship would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name.